Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. What news of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist? Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Celebrate May Day with the station that supports workers' struggles everywhere. 27 migrant strawberry packers in Greece, unpaid for six months, were shot by their employer when they asked to be paid. That's why international solidarity matters. We want everybody coming back safely, getting back to work. What kind of sacrifices do you make working these hours on Saturdays and Sundays? It's sickening. They've got no idea what it's like for people who go to work on weekends and have to work overnight and and what it takes for them to make ends meet. From 7am, Monday, May 1st, tune in to hear from diverse community activists as we talk solidarity and resistance in celebration of May Day 2017. We will be there to support you all along and we thank you very much for your commitment and we will have a victory. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday, the 29th of April. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Pierre Mora. And that was a bit of a slightly different uh, intro just because it is coming up to May Day. And before we go on, Giselle, thank you very much to the Solidarity Breakfast team. And the song that you heard before our intro theme was Hives and Honey. And I think you could hear the bees in the background from Inquating Beyond. So um, very interesting music there was. Wasn't it, uh, Giselle? More, I think, possibly your Did generation you, than mine. <laughs> listener, could you read between the lines of that? Uh, what do we call it? A backhanded compliment. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And um, so, on this program, we'll have um, a bit of a chat about May Day, given that it's only a couple of days away. We've got a huge. But first, we'll do our usual roundup of news from the region, and then we'll be bringing you an interview with uh, Sonia Kadia, who is from the Awami Workers Party in Pakistan and the feminist collective about the situation for workers and women in uh, in Pakistan, especially in relation to the issue of blasphemy and terrorism. But uh, Giselle, if people are interested in getting more information, how do they get in contact with us? That's right. You can find us on the web or the w's.aawl.org.au. We're on Facebook and Twitter, so find us on those social media platforms. You can email us at aawl at aawl.org.au and if you so choose and if any of us happen to be staffing the office, you can technically ring us on zero three nine double six. <laughs> That's right. And of course, to all those people listening internationally, you can certainly do that uh, for free on Skype or on any of those uh, platforms these days that you can do it. But anyway, Giselle, we'll go straight to the news items. You're first. That's right. We're kicking off in Iraq this morning. This week, the Basra Gas Company, a joint venture with Shell, Southern Gas and Mitsubishi, agreed that its 6,000 strong workforce could be represented by the Iraqi Federation of oil unions. This is a great win by workers to have the power to collectively bargain in such a strategic industry. In the last few years, oil workers have staged a number of large mobilisations as well as fighting off efforts to imprison their leaders. Just last month, six Iraqi trade unions agreed to file a complaint with the International Labour Organisation in relation to the Iraqi government not allowing workers 
the right to freely organise into independent unions. Um, and of course, that, that particular Iraqi Federation of Oil, um, Oil Unions, we uh, was talking about this before the show, Pierre. AAWL did have the fortune of meeting them back in 2005, two years after the war started in Iraq. Um, and that union has been under such incredible pressure because of the strategic location of, well, oil and the fact that the war is about that oil. That's right, and um, it's uh, it's really incredible to think of of organising workers in such a, a country beset by war, civil war, and all kinds of social issues. Um, so we take our hats to them. Um, now we go to Thailand. We do a fairly big jump where um, a missing plaque has really become a symbol of the repression of Thailand's dictatorship. The removal of a small brass plaque, no larger than a dinner plate, embedded in the tarmac in front of Bangkok's Ananta Samakon Throne Hall, has become a symbol of the continuing military repression in Thailand. The plaque commemorates the 1932 overthrow of the rule of absolute monarchy in a new constitution. The um, a human rights activist, Watana Mwang Suk, will now be charged under the Computer Crimes Act for a post that demanded the police to investigate its theft. And um, basically the police has actually said that because no one has owned up to owning that plaque, which was put there by democracy activists in 1932, therefore a theft could not have been committed. So um, the, there is no crime, although now the person who said they should investigate it has been charged with a crime. Uh, on another matter, again uh, regarding the dictatorship, um, another uh, Les Majest prisoner has been awarded a human rights award by a South Korean organisation. Pao Dao Din has been awarded the 2017 Kwanju Prize for Human Rights from the South Korea-based May 18th Memorial Foundation. And as people will remember, um, last year there was another uh, imprisoned activist, Somyot, who was given uh, another um, the Jun Tail Award by another South Korean human rights organisation. So um, that's really fantastic. Well, news that these human rights awards exist. What in are South you saying, Korea. Pierre? If we if we can't bust them out, uh, let's just give them prizes for being there. Uh, Is that, that the cynic? The cynic in me. I think that's the cynic in you. All right, let me say. I think it's fantastic that these South Korean organisations um, value and uh, recognise the, the the work of these imprisoned Thai activists. How's that? Very good. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Recovered. <laughs> Uh, we're moving now to uh, Cambodia. Last year, a number of beer promotion women workers were dismissed by Cambrew for fighting changes to their employment contract that would have worsened their working conditions. The Cambodian Food and Service Workers Federation has been supporting these workers in their fight against Cambrew. In retaliation, the company is suing the union for damages for their involvement in a strike at a company warehouse. In addition, reports have come out that the company, uh, excuse me, reports have come out of the company offering money to selected workers in an attempt to undermine workers' solidarity and break the union. Of course, those tactics are not uncommon. That's right. Um, unfortunately, not. Um, we now go nearby to um, Philippines, where Filipino workers uh, continue to face the danger of death squads. The discovery of a hidden room inside a Manila police station that was used to keep accused suspects without charge is only the latest revelation of the continually brutal war on drugs that President Duterte has unleashed. 
Early this month, an ex-police officer from Davao offered evidence of his own complicity in Duterte's death squads, while Vice President Lenny Robredo has started to comment on the rising number of Filipinos killed with impunity, and I think the number is unfortunately over 8,000 now. A Filipino lawyer has now petitioned the International Criminal Court in The Hague to charge Mr Duterte and 11 other Filipino officials with mass murder and crimes against humanity. And uh, next week we hope to bring you an uh, interview with um, with an organisation called Network Against Killing that will um, talk about this uh, war on drugs and their effects on uh, the urban uh, working class communities in the Philippines. I, I think the, that um, statistic is important to look at and of course I um, I didn't look this up before the show but as far as I remember under Gloria Arroyo for the four years of her presidency there were se- about 700 targeted um, assassinations of trade union leaders which we at the time said um, came second to only one other nation in relation to the murder of trade unionists, and that was Colombia, um, and particularly Coca-Cola workers. Um, but the the, the number six thousand is a lot of eight thousand. Ex- sorry, eight thousand is is mind-boggling in terms of extrajudicial killings. It's called mass murder. It, <laughs> it can't, you know, what else it, yeah, can we get? Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Our, our last story for the morning, South Korea. This week, a letter from Han Sung-kyun, the imprisoned leader of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, was released. In the, in the letter, Sung-kyun thanks all of his supporters, both locally and internationally, and restated his commitment to keep fighting the anti-worker offensive of the last couple of years. Even though Korean workers were instrumental in forcing President Park to resign earlier this year, they're still facing many of the same issues. And I have said it on this show before and I'll say it again, um, Korean trade unions are literally in the fight of their life. It's been a long, drawn-out fight, but the intention absolutely without question is to smash the most militant labour movement in the region, which is Korea. And if we let that happen, if we sit back and let that happen, then I think the fate of all of our labour movements is um, seriously in question. That's right. So we'll go to a quick community announcement and then that's a a very good segue into May Day and we'll have a a quick little chat about it. I often feel the only thing standing between us falling off that precipice and actually fighting our way back up the top of the hill is the trade union movement. I really believe that. We have the numbers, we have the commitment, we have the heart, we have the will to really fight. And the only way we're going to win that fight is to grow the union movement. That was Jed Carney talking up union. Stay tuned to 3CR for more union news. 8.55 on your AM dial or 3cr.org.au. It's just on 12 past 9 o'clock, Giselle, here on 3CR Radio, and you're listening to um, Asia Pacific Currents, brought to you every week by Australia Asia Worker Links. And Giselle, which side are you on? <laughs> Outrageous for you. Come on. <laughs> it shows that I was listening to the announcement and, you know, the segue. You know, what more could you want? <laughs> Opening up for you to talk about, of course, I'm on the right side of the workers. I'm on the left side of the workers. Well, that's correct. <laughs> well, well, well said. Yes, yes. And of course, um, what's coming on Monday? Well, that's, well, I mean, we can. 
Obviously, let's give a plug to all of the different events that are happening on May Day. So the first thing that's happening on the 1st of May at 12 o'clock is the um, annual uh, gathering um, at the t- at the eight-hour monument at 12 o'clock um, and then a walk at 12.30 to uh, Her Majesty's Theatre for some reason. I can't read all of this to get across that. However, that gathering is organised by the... Um, an Arco Syndicalist Federation. And I did uh, give them a ring and have a chat to them about their event. And Lee Kendall reminded me approximately a hundred times in that phone call that this particular tradition has been going on for 30 years. So join them at 12 o'clock at the eight hour monument on Monday. And then at 5.30, AAWL will be having um, a rally at the State Library where we'll be reading our international statements. So our comrades comrades from across the region who put out May Day statements will be reading those out to uh, to remind us that this movement is actually international. Um, And, of course, on Sunday the 7th of May, the official May Day Committee Trades Hall uh, May Day Rally and Party in Ligon Street. So it'll start with a festival at about, is it 11, 11 a.m.? Something like I think it's 11am and if you get there and it hasn't quite started well, you've got time for a coffee. (laughs) We're marching at one o'clock, which is the official May Day March. That, that's right. So a whole number of events that you can participate in. And uh, Giselle, as you said uh, very much at the, at the last item of that mini news item, you know, with the South Korean, the fight of their life, obviously they're not the only ones. If you look at um, some of the imprisoned workers in, in India as well that we've often brought information for you, or even all the um, labour activists in jail in Iran. Uh, May Day is really uh, an issue around class, isn't it, and about our fighting for our class. And I think that particular, I mean, we always talk about the, the fight is intensifying, um, but I, I, given the war on North Korea, the heightened aggression from uh, US imperialism f- uh, against Asia particularly, I think we're actually getting to the point where this peaceful coexistence with capitalism is no longer a viable option. I think that um, our traditional methods of walking calmly to the bargaining table and asking for as much as we can possibly squeeze out of the other side while they're asking for as much as they can squeeze out of us, I think those days are over. I think the fight is beyond that and there is no real, clear possibility of peaceful coexistence with capitalism. Oh, they're very... Um, uh, fighting fight, words, fighting are they? Fighting words, fighting words, and, and very um, very deep, cutting words, and uh, it would seem like I think we probably need a whole program just to um, tease those out, but uh, I'm afraid not. But it's actually interesting you've said that about how hard the struggle is because... Uh, that's another very good segue, um, Giselle, because the interview that um, I did um, just uh, recently, and, it, and it's coming up uh, now, we'll, we'll play it with uh, Sonia Kadia, who she's from the Awami Workers League and Feminist Collective um, in Pakistan. It's, um, she talks about um, very much how the issues of blasphemy and terrorism are actually used to, um, to stifle um, working class activity and are actually used by um, powerful groups to get their own way. So we'll go straight into that um, interview, and it's uh, just on 16 past 9 o'clock here on 3CR Radio. 
We often hear cases of blasphemy in Pakistan. Sometimes we even hear that people get killed by mobs once they're accused by, by people of blasphemy. Can you give us a rundown what the issues are around blasphemy, how it's used and the effects it has on working class people in Pakistan? So basically, blasphemy law comes from actually a British era law. And this was something that was incorporated into the penal codes of almost all British colonies. In Pakistan, the law was further amended afterwards to um, sort of bring in even more sort of issues and different kinds of actions that were not in it before. Um, So it became slowly much more draconian. And I think the way it is used is really that because it's not just actually religious or blasphemy issues that come under it, but often people use it or utilize it for everyday kind of conflict. So, for instance, um, a few years ago, there was an incident in Lahore where an entire Christian neighborhood was burned down and over a charge of blasphemy against one young man from the community. And as it turned out uh, afterwards, it seemed that the real reason behind it was that the, this neighborhood was near in an industrial area where which wanted to expand, and they were just trying to evict them. They were trying to buy off the land, and the, the community had refused to sell the land. So this was, in, in a sense, sort of like an issue around land mafia. But because this blasphemy law is a sort of a vocabulary that is available and it's sort of a system where... So nobody dares challenge it, that it has become the most sort of utilized and most productive form of sort of getting your own end in a way. So so recently, like about two weeks ago, there was this issue of a young man in, in a university in Khaybe Pakhtunkhwa from Medan who was murdered over blasphemy issue. And um, it was a similar thing that it turned out that he was having problems with the university administration. He had criticized them. And in return, they just sort of spread this rumor that he had committed blasphemy, which sort of allows the creation of a sort of a mob, which then goes on and is unstoppable, etc. So I think these are like political sort of issues which take the form of blasphemy law and there is definitely a great deal to change this because of the way it's being used but there is very little political will to really do that. Thank you for that explanation and certainly it's something that we don't hear about the political ramification or the political use of of blasphemy and we'll get on to the political will as you say afterwards but I want to now examine another big area in Pakistan and the effect of terrorism and the effect that it has. I would assume that it also has all kinds of political forces behind them. Yes, definitely. I think terrorism, like everywhere, it's, 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 it's a, it has been a very, very complicated issue and there are so many layers and so many different groups that are involved and with various ideologies with various sort of political ends so it's very difficult to sort of very to simplify what it is and it isn't but how it affects people's i mean ordinary people's lives because of course it creates a certain sort of insecurity amongst people but you know i think even more interestingly is the response the state response that becomes very important and very sort of has great ramifications so for instance the kind of laws that we've 
we have in place and the anti-terrorism laws and the way they're used then because increasingly because we have a separate court system now for trying terrorism laws and what happens is that because it's, its procedure is is such that it's uh, there's no bail available for it um, it's also a much quicker trial than normal criminal trials so we are so what's happening is that literally every every ordinary crime is being brought into t- terrorism charges and also it is being used against political activists social movements um, labor activists etc so and once you become known as a terrorist, if somebody, um, and for instance, this one movement, a peasant movement in Punjab, um, was recently labeled as a terrorist, and there was a fake encounter, and it was televised in all in national televisions. And a movement that had been able to sort of hold on, hold its own for about 20 years, sort of very quickly dissipated because of the, the narrative that it now got into that this is a terrorist movement or they, some of these people are harboring terrorists, etc. So I think this the formation of the security state, it is extremely dangerous and, and problematic. And it's not just Pakistan. I believe this is happening all over the world in a way. The, the, there's more surveillance. There's um, all these draconian kind of laws being put into place. And I think it's very, very similar in Pakistan as well. And it really affects the space that you have for political work, for sort of questioning uh, state policy etc because if you do you could very easily be labeled either a terrorist or somebody who's harboring them or somebody who's like just sort of charged with sedition or something on those lines you're very correct in saying that this is happening all around the world in pakistan uh, we covered uh, years back the faisal Abad six that were actually uh, charged under the anti-terrorism law even though they were labor activists but yeah. i want to pick up on a point that you mentioned about stopping or just hindering the space to be active. So how do labour activists, how do anti-government activists react to this decreasing space and this pressure of the anti-terrorism law? I think it's it's something still that we are struggling with and trying to understand how best to respond to it. Also, that mean, in, in general, there is newer laws, for instance, there are cybercrime laws that are being implemented. And that decreases the space further because that means that even on social media now that you are you cannot critique the state, which is something that a lot of activists often do. So there's a lot of surveillance in increasing. There's a lot of surveillance online. So in that way, it is something that we're still trying to grapple with about how to respond to it. There has been yes, definitely there have been protests and people have been talking about it. But at this time, I would say there is no core strategy as such. But I think that is again true because it, all over the world. I think activists are struggling to understand what this means and what, how to reorganize themselves. One of your key areas is working with women and, and gender equality. So having talked about the issue of blasphemy, how it's used, about terrorism, anti-terrorism, the decreasing space for action, what effects that does these have particularly have on uh, women workers? I think women workers have some, their issues are very similar to male workers as well. But of course, the violence is, it's more drastic in the sense that women are often paid even less than men are. And their conditions, so conditions for work 
for all workers are very, very dangerous. There is no safety measures and women often because they're even more in the informal industry, it's even worse for them. But of course, there's also the added issue of uh, sexual violence against women. And again, something that uh, even though it's very, there is a lot of legislation and increasingly more um, legislation now because gender has become something that the state takes on um, and talks about and sort of uses to present a, a sort of a soft image because they want the world to see that, you know, we're working a lot on women's rights, etc. But on the ground, when some of these issues come up, it's just really hard to navigate the criminal justice system to sort of talk about them because, I mean, there's a lot of stigma around it, but also, I mean, there's power differentials. If this is somebody who's your employer or who's in some other power position, it is very, very difficult to get justice and to, to be able to even get the person to the police to register your issues or to take them seriously. Some of those uh, problems uh, are common around the world as well. Now, as a last question, Sonia, and, and to really, we've talked about some of the problems that labour activists face in, in Pakistan. What are some of the actions, some of the projects, some of the campaigns that the labour movement is involved to increase the, the rights of, of workers in Pakistan? I think some of the issues obviously are around safety. So um, we've had many incidents past few years where factories have been caught on fire and a lot of workers have uh, died. And there is no sort of concerted effort by the government to, to enforce labor, you know, sort of safety standards. So this is something that activists are talking about or working around. The other thing is around the issues of domestic workers, which are often women. And there is no way to ensure that there is decent pay There or around issues of sexual abuse, etc. So um, that is also another thing that a lot of civil society and activists, a lot of NGOs are also taken on. And then the issue of minimum wage, which so there is a certain, there is a minimum wage under statute, but it is not uh, implemented. And the other thing is that I feel because a lot of uh, Pakistan is increasingly urbanizing and so the cities are growing rapidly and there is really and they're also because this is a very neoliberal framework so we're making housing societies for rich people but there is no sort of concept of seeing how the poor people are coming in to be to work in their for the for the rich people in their houses or in their factories etc how are they going to live so some of the work that we've been doing um, the past few years is around housing rights and the right to the city and I think this is something that is sort of evolving further and probably will, will be one of the main issues in the near future as well. It's interesting that you've mentioned the issue of urban rights because I think we are seeing the savage urbanisation happening in many countries in the world and the issue of housing and rights is becoming a greater issues for a lot of workers around the world. I know I said last question, but just one additional. In terms of the international labour movement or labour activists in other countries, what do you think would be the best campaign, best plan, best actions to actually work? You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Solidarity with workers in Pakistan. I think there are so many different issues, so it's hard to say what one particular issue would be, but be, being able to sort of keep in touch and to see when, when there are certain kinds of calls for solidarity that are sort of given out. And I think one of the because 
one of the issues that as activists on the ground that we are facing is that the, the shrinking space. So when we do talk about these issues, then you become sort of labeled as anti-state and that's in that entire sort of security state paradigm sort of jumps into action. So I think in some ways, just to be able to do work on the ground, this issue of sort of challenging the security state paradigm and their laws, that is very important. And possibly this is something that, because as this is happening all over the world, this is something that we could build solidarity on, learning how to navigate these issues, how to keep safe while doing activism, learning from each other, and also speaking up for each other at, at such situations when these things happen. But I think it's probably a very important thing for us to do. Well, thank you for those fighting words, Sonia, and we certainly wish you all the best and, and take care in uh, all your work. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Celebrate May Day with the station that supports workers' struggles everywhere. 27 migrant strawberry packers in Greece, unpaid for six months, were shot by their employer when they asked to be paid. That's why international solidarity matters. We want everybody coming back safely, getting back to work. What kind of sacrifices do you make working these hours on Saturdays and Sundays? It's sickening. They've got no idea what it's like for people who go to work on weekends and have to work overnight and and what it takes for them to make ends meet. From 7am, Monday, May 1st, tune in to hear from diverse community activists as we talk solidarity and resistance in celebration of May Day 2017. We will be there to support you all along and we thank you very much for your commitment and we will have a victory. And of course, we'll be there as well. And uh, yes, we'll hopefully have a victory as as well, but um, it'll be good. May Day will be good. We can certainly say that. Oh, God, I don't believe you at all, Pierre. Oh, come no. on, Giselle. Listeners, do get along to all of the – there are quite a number of events for May Day, so make sure you get along to those. Um, check out the May Day Committee's Facebook page and um, other advertising material because they still do have their week-long procession of activities. Um, and, of course, you can tune in. Pierre is actually doing a short stint on Breakfast Radio on Monday, so tune in to listen to what Pierre has to say about the international Labor Movement, approximately 8 o'clock on 3CR. Is that right, Pierre? That's correct, Giselle. Your your spies are very, very good. Uh, but um, we really have to go. Palestine, remember, is coming up. That was You were, you were uh, hearing an interview with Sonia Kadir from the Awami Workers uh, Party and the Feminist Collective um, from Pakistan. That's all that we've got today. We'll be back again next week with another um, program of Asia Pacific Currents. It's goodbye from me, Pierre Morrow. And me, Giselle Hannah. <laughs> 